so you stayed in Mexico City no. after that? or No. I married, and my husband was in the State Department. Oh, okay. So we went to live in Merida mm -hmm. for uh, two and a half years. Then we went to D.C. for a few months, then to Buenos Aires for four years. Oh, wow. Didn't and know then that. to Pittsburgh, uh, where he went back to school, my mm -hmm. husband. And then we came to Tucson. Mm -hmm. This is Barclay. Barclay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're back in Tucson in 1969. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what, how did you end up here? Well, or back here, I should yeah, say. Yeah, my, my husband Barclay. Um, went back to school to get a degree in drama, a master's, and he went to Carnegie Mellon, which at that time was still a very good drama school um, in directing. And so we lived there for two years, and so that was my, my first experience with the civil rights movement in mm -hmm. this country, because mm -hmm. we got there in 67, and 68 is when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I got a job with a poverty program there in Pittsburgh. It was kind of funny because it was a poverty program run by the Catholic Church uh, to work in the different African-American ghettos in the Pittsburgh area. And uh, I did, you know, I, I arrived there, was looking for a job. My husband was going to graduate school. We had two very little boys. And... Um, <laughs> I knew nothing about racial politics in this country. I mean, I had been gone yeah, the whole right, time. Right, and at a crucial moment. At a crucial moment. And so, I mean, I was all in favor of it, but I, I really didn't know about it. And um, so I applied for this job that was some kind of job with this poverty program in uh, Hazelwood, which was a a mixed ghetto, but mostly African-American, right on the Monongahela River, right outside the Laughlin Jones steel mill. And um, so I went, and uh, he wouldn't interview me. I was having trouble. Nobody knew what my degree was. I mean, you know, yeah, it right. was all crazy. And so he finally interviewed me, and I got a call the next day that I was hired. So he took me over to the office over in this ghetto area, and everybody would walk by and look at me. You know, there was a glass partition to my office, and they'd all come by. And so one said I was Filipino, another one said I was Japanese, <laughs> etc. Well, he was supposed to have hired an African-American, right? But he had had problems with the ones he had hired, these strong men who really wanted change. And so he turned and hired me. I was a safe little Catholic girl kind of, you know, mm -hmm. he could manage. <laughs> so he hired me. I later put two and two together. It took me a while to realize why he had hired mm -hmm. me. But by then I had the job, mm -hmm. right? So um, it was a horrible, horrible learning experience. Uh, I worked out of this convent, and the thing was to have programs for tutoring for children after school, had a senior citizens program. There were a lot of older people living on these steep hills that came down into the canyon. And they'd walk up 100 steps to go to their house. And here we have ice and snow. They'd mm -hmm. fall and get hurt. Mm -hmm. There wasn't an ambulance mm -hmm. there. And so the first thing we did was raise money for an ambulance. Um, but 
what I learned very quickly as I started going house to house to meet people and tell them about the program was that the Polish people, the Irish people, they were all workers who had been laid off from the, the steel mill mostly. And uh, so they were in dire poverty. It would have nothing to do with any poverty program. Nothing to do with the health clinic, nothing to do with the education. I mean, it was, it was just there for blacks, mm -hmm. and we are not, you know, it was really mm -hmm. harsh. Mm -hmm. The school, which was down the, this main avenue, the high school, looked like a prison. It had these huge metal fences around it with police. There were horrible fights there every wow. day. So I had this tutoring program, that the one I was the closest to, <clears throat> and I'd get all these African-American kids come in for tutoring, and we'd give all kinds of food and cake and you know, all kinds of things mm -hmm. to attract them to come. But nobody would have any... I couldn't get a single white kid in. I couldn't get a white person to come to the senior program that we had nothing. So what day we decided to have a talent show. <laughs> so the nun that worked with me, she was great. She was as crazy as I was. So we put out this big ad, you know, a talent show on X night, you know, come in and we're going to have a prize and that kind of thing. So we had calls from all over Pittsburgh, you know, all these kids with their bands and they all had dance and, you know, all kinds of stuff, all African-American. So we were really happy, you know, this was going to be a good thing. We worked it out with the priest. He said, just be sure you're careful. We said, yeah, we'll be careful, you know, the nun and I are there. So the night comes and I'm sitting in my little tiny office. <clears throat> we had the auditorium down the hall. And uh, this big burly policeman comes running in and he said, who's in charge here? <laughs> and I go, oh, can I help you? What on earth are you doing? <laughs> We've got all kinds of riots that are gonna start here and it's all your fault. I said, we're just having a talent show. What do you mean a riot? You can't call all these people together and expect there won't be a bunch of trouble. He had 20 police cars outside. Oh now, this is, this is a canyon. There's only like two roads to get out of it, uh -huh. right? So once you come in, you're trapped down there. And the church was kind of up on the hill of the convent. And so you had cars parked over. And so people couldn't get in because huh. all these police cars were there. So... Some young kid, you know, broke a glass window to one of these businesses on that street. Yeah. So they arrested a whole bunch of people. Oh, it was a mess. And uh, I tried to go talk to the chief of police. I, tried, I, I mean, it was mm. a bad scene. Yeah. So I learned quickly, you have to just be real, real careful. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so when Martin Luther King was assassinated, I was in the hospital at that time. I got very ill. And uh, you could, all you could hear were sirens everywhere. And I was in a, a ward that was just all African-American old people who were dying. Mm. It was the most horrible thing that night. Um, everybody was just crying and... You know, it was on the TV there. It was really horrible. And then we lived right on the edge of another ghetto. 
So when I went home, it was still, you know, all night there'd be ambulances and police cars driving back and forth. Uh, so I learned a lot in Pittsburgh about the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. and, and that was, at that time, I realized, at least what I thought was, we have to change the educational system. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. It's all in education. If we don't change it, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. We have to change. I had never wanted to be a teacher. That had never been. Hmm. <laughs> I wanted to do research. I wanted mm -hmm. to go to the UN, you know, stuff like yeah, that. Right. But I realized then that hmm. we had to teach, and we had to teach what was really our history. I, we have mm -hmm. to know who we are. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was what Pittsburgh did for me. Wow, yeah. Yeah. And then after yeah. those, so then from there you moved to Tucson? Yeah. Uh-huh, you yeah. and Berkeley, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. We moved to Tucson. He, he got a job with the Arizona Theater Company. Mm -hmm. And I came and <laughs> I had three weeks of utter misery applying for jobs and not getting even an interview for anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody would talk mm. to me for a job. I, I'd go home and cry every day, thinking, how is it possible that I can't get a job? <laughs> and so then I had filled in an application at Pima when Barkley did. And so I got a call from him one day and said, um, the person who was going to fill our history slot for this, they had a grant to start the to start the school. It was very innovative. Mm -hmm. Pima was right there at the top with innovative schooling at that moment mm -hmm. because there were a lot of people in the country that realized with the demonstration of Vietnam, all that, that we had to do something different with education. Mm -hmm. And so there were all kinds of things happening. And uh, so the people who were starting Pima were part of that, that wave. Mm -hmm. So I got a call. <laughs> Richard Snyder, he said, well, we looked at your CV, and uh, the person who was going to do history here can't fill the slot on this grant that we have, so could you come out for an interview? I said, yeah, I'll be right out there. And so then I explained, well, I don't have a degree in history, but I, all my all my work is based on a historical approach, you know, historicism kind of thing. So I had tons of history credits in my transcripts. And besides, I love the history of Mexico, so I'd always taken it, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, I sure so, do. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, they called me for an interview. I was interviewed by 25 people. So oh my 25 gosh. People. It was horrible. Wow. <laughs> and so thanks to Lee Scott, who was kind of the point man on that committee, it could have just fallen between the cracks because I saw that happen with a lot of candidates. It would just fall. We, we had huge committees. Nobody would really pick up on stuff. He kept it through and he got it on, so I got hired. And I started working there like three weeks after they had started this team-building process for their first grant. But it was the perfect place for me because they asked me to do community History. What is the history that our community needs? Wow. And I, and I, you were I was able for to it. do. Well, I don't know, but 
I found people to help me. I, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was just wonderful. And so my first years at Pima were like part of the most exciting academic thing I could ever have done. You know, I just loved every bit of it. I had tremendous support. The the president, of course, was all in favor of diversity and what we now call diversity. It was intercultural then, whatever. Yeah. And then the provost, Rudy Malone, he was out of Berkeley, all into doing education in a totally new way. Uh, and then I had a, what would be a department head. They had other names for them. Louise Bronson. She was a clinical psychologist and really into how people learn and really into civil rights. And they let me do whatever I wanted. Oh, <laughs> it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so with, with Bill Lewis... And me, we would just sit there and put things together in different ways and try this and try that. And we, and see, the students we had then were great, too. Uh, I mean, students are always great, but that particular, what was going on in the country yeah. made a big difference mm-hmm. because this is, our first classes started in 1970, mm-hmm. you know. We had Vietnam vets. We had a program to bring in minorities who had never gone to school, people who had never had a chance at higher education, regardless of race, whatever, right? And so we had this mixture, older people, young people, veterans, uh, poor kids, and people that were heavily politically involved in the the Chicano movement, the African-American movement, the American Indian, everyone was just out seeking to change the world. I mean, there was this sense that we could really make a better world. And I guess that's what has me so sad now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Where did it go, you know? And all these, these great hopes. I mean, we would have these intercultural workshops. (laughs) And I laugh because... We would bring, we had people from the American Indian Movement out of North Dakota driving across the country on just a little bit of money to be here with us for a week, mm-hmm. right? We had Yaquis that would come up from uh, Sonora. We had Yaquis from here. We had Tohonos. We had African Americans. We had Chicanos. It was wonderful. We'd get together for four days and just yell at each other, getting, you know, you're this, you're that, we're this, we're doing that, da, 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 da. Bringing all this history that we could, you know what I mean? It was so exciting and eating tons of pozole (laughs) and rice and beans because, you know, you have to feed people. If you're going to have them there four days, people would be in sleeping bags, Mm -hmm. and they let me do it, you know, People would get credit. My students would get credit for attending these workshops uh-huh. and build students. And so we had these mix of students from Pima mixing up with all these radicals from all over the country. So wow, that's it was, really amazing. It was wonderful. What an incredible moment. It was and wonderful. Tucson was pretty, yeah, right? Tucson, we had just yeah. come off of urban, so-called ur- urban re- uh, renewal, urban right, removal, right? Right, right. So I, I think well, people were Well, but pretty... the big thing was the anti-Vietnam movement. Oh, okay. It was very strong here. Mm-hmm. And there were demonstrations here at the U. You know, we had the Bear Down incidents with the African-American students. The Chicano students were always demonstrating. I mean, and we at Pima gave them a place. We hired them 
to be peer counselors. We had a grant for that. Mm -hmm. So that they would do stuff here. They would bring students from Pima here. You know, I mean, it was it was a very exciting time. Wow. So you were looking and for ways to support people who were active exactly, exactly, at that moment. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Who were actively involved and wanted to work with youth mm -hmm. and would attract youth. But it was also very harsh because... You know, everybody had their ideas of who was the worst victim or what was, mm -hmm. you know, all those things that come when you're trying to do intercultural work. Right, right. And so it was not easy, but uh, Bill and I had gone through training and we had trained other people. We brought in other people who were trained so that we kind of learned how to run these these groups. And <laughs> a lot of people get real angry. Some of the guys, oh, you can't do that. You waste all your time sitting around talking and you don't go do anything. You know, that that whole yeah. thing. But they read a lot of stuff. They learned a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And it was very... And the big thing was all this anti-Vietnam. And we had all these veterans from Vietnam. Yeah. And so here we had this situation. I mean, it was really... A challenge as a teacher, how to how to deal with that, mm -hmm. you know, and how to bring out all those things. And some veterans were really into being anti-Vietnam, and other veterans were really into supporting it. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a real challenge uh, in that way. As yeah, well. it's a, it's really interesting to me to hear you say this because at this moment we are so polarized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In this nation, and yet, at that moment, it seems you found ways to. Well, I mean, it sounds like it was not a, not easy, but no. you found ways to dialogue. Yeah. It seems right. Well, I'll I'll tell you like one time, because I was teaching Western Civ as well. You know, you have to make a living, right? <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, the, the day job. <laughs> yeah, the department has to have students, yeah, right? right? And so I I taught Western Civ, and um, I love teaching. Uh, oh, how can I forget now? <laughs> Rousseau. Uh -huh. I love Rousseau, right? <laughs> My romantic side. And so I had prepared this wonderful lecture on Rousseau. We were starting out the semester. And uh, we had been doing the, we were going to do the French Revolution and stuff. And so I was really getting into these, these ideas. And so I had about 30 students in my class. Our class of people were all small, 30 or less. And it was all mostly Anglo students that took Western Civ because when Pima started, it was mostly Anglo students who were coming to the U. You have a couple of Chicanos, hardly any women, mm. right? Because it was required the women would study. If they came to the U, they'd go to education mm -hmm. and or Spanish. And uh, so my classes in Western Civil were mostly white male, but a few, few minority. So anyway, I walk into class and I start my thing on Rousseau, you know, going <laughs> great ideas and all this. And I had three vets that I knew were vets and sitting in the back of the class. And they started laughing and tell, laughing among themselves and reads. So I told them that they had to stop. I was pleased to respect your fellow students and ha 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 it said something that was very demeaning. So I said, Okay, class is over, don't come back. This is the beginning of the semester. 
and I did away with a class. I, I'm sorry. I did away with a class. And so, so then I went back to my head. My God, what did you just do? I can't. I mean, what you, so I went in to talk to uh, Bronson, Louise Bronson. I just told her what I had done. I said, I don't know what. Well, she said, yeah, I can see how that can happen. They can be pretty lousy. They're so sexist. She was really into the women's movement, too. Mm -hmm. We had it also at Pima. And that was part of the problem, was having women teachers, too. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she said, it, it's very, just call everybody up, and you'll just have to work individually with each one. That's all there is to it. you got to get them through. Oh, I had such a busy semester. Oh, my gosh. It was like, you know, 30 students on independent study kind of thing. It was, wow. I paid. I never did that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, one has to learn to dialogue. Uh, yeah. I had to learn how to, how to do that. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Because, yes, being a woman teacher, we had a lot of Saudi students at certain times. That was really problematic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But even being a minority woman, it was not easy. Mm -hmm. It was not easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what, um, I mean, I can see your trajectory coming from Munam and coming to mm -hmm. the States and being in the swirl of all the civil, civil rights mm -hmm. activism in Tucson in the Southwest. How did you um, get into working on immigration issues? Oh, well... I mean, specifically. See, yeah, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I was... I've always really believed that one works in community, right? Mm -hmm. That's... I went to school to go back to Douglas to change the world. Of course, I never went back to <laughs> Douglas. But um, I always saw my education as something that meant you had to get back, right? What you know... People who need what you know, you have to be there for them. And um, I, I met Lupe Castillo very shortly after I came because she was doing Chicano history. And a sister of mine who was here at the U of A was in the Chicano movement, she mm -hmm. movement, she knew Lupe. Mm -hmm. And she said, the person you have to talk to is Lupe Castillo. She's a historian. So I met with Lupe. It took a while to establish confidence because... Confidence was not easy among activist students. You know, they had mm -hmm. to be careful. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then we became very, very close friends. And um, You're talking about La Confianza, right? La Confianza, the, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Because there was so much distrust. Mm -hmm. And um, so she, she, you know, we were able to just really work on Chicano history and set up things for it in, in a way that responded to what, we felt Tucson needed. And she was very active in the Chicano house, and so I kind of was in and out of that. I was not a trusted person in Chicano house, particularly because I was married to an Anglo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was, you know, there was a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And Barkley has been just the most incredible navigator in the world, mm -hmm. that he has known how to give of himself in a very, with great integrity so that he has built trust in our community no matter what. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know us when yeah, we came. Right. And um, so it was... Um, Monzo had been established as part of the War on Poverty 
community development program that the city had, they would give these grants to these different centers, and so Manto had been created. And Lupe was on the board there, and so she asked me, she said, you know, we're, uh, we have this group, do you want to come? I said, oh, great. You know, I thought it was a good opportunity to do community work uh, that was not at Pima. And um, so I started going there, and it quickly was obvious that the service that people needed the most, I mean, you know, it was helping people with social security, all these things uh, that people need, translation of forms and, you know, all that navigation that has to go on with bureaucracies. We were doing all that. Mm -hmm. But the one that came up the most was the regularization of immigration papers. Okay. And what would happen would be things like this. So here's a U.S. citizen, say it's a man, and he marries a woman from Magdalena. And so, of course, he, at that time, the way the law was, he had a right to bring her in, right? So he would get married, bring her here, and then the thing would be to go to the Border Patrol office in the federal building and put in the papers and make the change. Well, if he did that, she would be deported and told, you have to fix all your papers over there mm -hmm. and then come, which would sometimes take three or four years. Oh, my gosh, right. And mm -hmm. so people didn't go. Mm -hmm. But the thing was, if you had a lawyer, <laughs> you'd go, and they would let you stay here while you did mm -hmm. it. So, and people didn't have money for a lawyer, right? So we found out. Margot Cowan was hired there as uh, the president. She had been an organizer with Cesar Chavez, a young, energetic person. She got on the ball and got training for our staff there. We had a small staff through the Border Patrol agencies or the immigration agency to train our people to do these things because you don't have to have a lawyer if you go through this process. Mm -hmm. So that we then were the people doing the, the uh, counseling mm -hmm. And so we had all these clients. They'd come to us, we'd fill in the papers, we'd take it to the business, they'd get their papers fixed, and that was that. So that grew enormously very quickly, and that was great. But we had been doing things like police brutality. Uh, we got a program approved. There had been a, there would be big parties and people would be arrested. It was a mess, you know. In the barrio, you know, have these big parties, and then everybody would suddenly get arrested. It was really bad. They just come in and sweep everybody yeah. out. Mm -hmm. And so we, Margot, organized all the West Side community, which included Angles, mm -hmm. you know, from further up and right down in the barrio. You're talking about north, like, I mean, uh, south, like so, Menlo Park, all the way down yeah, to the Yeah, Menlo Hollywood. Park, right. But we, uh -huh. especially west, you know, oh, right. going uh -huh. west, bringing in all the people that were west, which mm -hmm. included a lot of Angles mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And we had these big meetings and talked about police brutality. Joel Valdez was the city manager at that time. So we had all these meetings with Joel Valdez and ended up signing a contract or an agreement whereby, I don't remember, I think it was like 10 policemen or six policemen at a time would be taken out and go through this program that we had. It was six weeks. We brought in two teachers from Cuernavaca to teach Spanish. They would go through intensive Spanish training and one week of cultural training. I think it was five weeks of Spanish and one week of cultural, six weeks. And they were paid their full salary for doing this. Mm -hmm. And so we taught the classes uh, 
And we brought in these two people who were just wonderful, you know, teaching Spanish as a second language with very new uh, methods. And then Lupe and I did the week of culture, and they would go to people's houses in the barrio, and we, we would have history lessons for them all morning, and then in the afternoon they go to people's houses. The result of that was the Adam One community policing. They put in a police station right down on St. Mary's, mm -hmm. and they got to know all the neighborhood. But what happened was as soon as we trained them, they'd get offers from other cities and they'd leave. Oh, wow. uh -huh. <laughs> so the the program lasted about three years, but then the city said, well, you know, we're just paying people to go somewhere uh -huh. else. Right. But we had, been in, we had done that. So I was really happy, you know, to be involved with this group of women. And we're doing this immigration. Well, one day, it was in April of 76, they raided our office. The police and the Border Patrol came and took everything, everything, even the posters on the wall. Oh, my gosh. The files of those 500 clients that we had. Mm -hmm. And that night, they deported several hundred of those people. Wow. They accused Margot and the two volunteer nuns that worked there with harboring, transporting, whatever, mm. more than 70 years of felony charges. So... <laughs> they really were going to make an example out of them. Yeah, they, and yeah. so... And we weren't doing anything illegal. We had permission for everything we did. Mm. So they did us a big favor because what happened was there were all these progressive community here in Tucson, you know, yeah. people were in favor of civil rights it's and Tucson. all of that. yeah. And we had this great big rally, and all of these people showed up, and we started raising money, and we went on a national level. So Margot, Lupe, and I, we went all over the country talking mm -hmm. to groups raising money mm -hmm. for the defense fund. Mm -hmm. And then we were lawyers who volunteered. There were all these people in the Democratic Party, and you know, volunteers. We had volunteers all over. So this community was really educated in this process on immigrant rights. We ourselves became more <laughs> educated about it, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so we ended up lobbying in Washington. Oh, we did crazy things all over the country. And um, so we got to know a lot of people. And so finally, when Carter was elected, because this happened under Nixon. Under, and then Ford probably. Yeah, and end, Ford right? kept, mm -hmm. it kept on. Um, but then Carter was elected. When Carter was elected, we'd been doing all this lobbying. We went there to Washington, really hit hard, and then the charges were dropped. Gosh, okay. Mm -hmm. But what we had done in the in the meantime was we had sued, in the name of those families, we had sued the immigration service, and so <laughs> we found out the immigration service they do. They were so disorganized. They had nothing. They didn't even know who they had deported. They didn't even, mm. you know, they were asking us for the names of the people that they had deported. So we came to an agreement. There were these high-level, you know, the senators and, you know, real high-level people got together, and a settlement was made. And so all those people got papers to come back. And they each got maybe four or five hundred dollars or something. You know, there was some money involved, but they got papers to come back. But that put.
put us on this road. <laughs> and see, this happened in 76, right? Well, all the immigration stuff was just building up to a big thing that ended up with the IRCA uh -huh. in 86. Mm -hmm. So all those years, we were involved in all these issues having to do with immigrant rights. Mm -hmm. And I just loved doing all that because, well, I had trained... Uh, I wasn't a U.S. lawyer, and I wasn't doing legal work, but mm -hmm. I knew how to help frame things, and yeah, I knew, right. uh, you know what I mean, all that stuff. Yeah. And so, and then 80s, uh, we have all the Salvadoreños that came up, right. and we were the ones that started working there. Then Sanctuary came out of that. And so I did a lot of work with Margo on uh, asylum cases and testifying in court, you know, all that, mm -hmm. that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was like... Uh, being able to use things I knew was to help. So you're and teaching and you're involved in all this immigration work. Yeah. It sounds like you were very busy and you're raising a family. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think time. my children probably suffered. They, they, they grew up going to meetings. You know, <laughs> I don't think either one of them like meetings at all. They don't go to meetings. <laughs> <laughs> is your uh, is one of your sons a teacher? Well, I, both of my sons, one was a teacher at Tucson High. He uh, taught oh, uh, yeah. literature. Okay. Mm -hmm. He just retired a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And he's um, he rides a bike. He's a racer on bikes, even now at this late date. Uh -huh. And he writes poetry, and he's getting some published, which is really mm -hmm. nice. Wow. Yeah. And my other son is a sociologist, and he teaches at A&M. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I did see your son speak uh, briefly at a... Oh, what was it? Um, do you remember all? Of course, you do all of the the dust up around um, Tucson High and the curriculum. Oh yeah, right. And we right. had a big meeting there, and he stood yeah. up and spoke, and he was so Chris. eloquent. Yeah. Chris. Yeah. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, yeah. how so? Um, there was all the f the flurry of the nineteen eighties and the Immigration Control and Reform Act during the Reagan period, mm. and then. Uh, but, I, you know, over this time, it seems like the border is just hardening and hardening and hardening. And yeah. Well, a big thing happens um, because of NAFTA, right? Mm -hmm. But even before that, when they started negotiating NAFTA, uh, Manzo, which was the one that had led with the asylum cases, under the for the Guatemalans and Salvadoreños, you know, and we've been working with Sanctuary. We were totally burnt out. Uh, I mean, that kind of work burns people out, mm -hmm. and when then you have to be raising money as well. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's totally yeah. a burnout, mm -hmm. and uh, so we couldn't keep Monza open anymore. We didn't have the money. We didn't have the energy, and you know the eighties were a difficult time, too, because it was the, what, the decade of the Hispanics or something, and there was this, this Reagan pressure. The politics weren't right for movement, you know what I mean? The movement was kind of frittering out in many ways. And, uh, I mean, the, the politics were just different. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we kind of closed down Manzo and... Uh, Lupe and a couple of other people, and I helped out a little bit, but not very much. All the cases that were left asylum that were still in court, she organized lawyers to take cases so that we wouldn't leave anyone out there hanging, right? But then we closed down. That was it. 
So in the late 80s, uh, Lupe and Isabel got together, Isabel Garcia, who had been working with us a lot before, and they started the Mesia organizing project. But it was for advocacy for immigrant rights, not to do direct services. Mm -hmm. The direct services had killed us. Mm -hmm. This is and, more like pushing for policy. Yeah, pushing uh, for policy, educating community, mm -hmm. that whole thing. And so they organized, and so I was working with them. We'd have workshops, and we even had, quote, an international conference where we invited Colby, who was a negotiator on the U.S. side for NAFTA. Jim Colby. Jim Colby. Uh -huh. He was a congressman mm -hmm. at that time. And we invited people from Mexico, uh, some people from some unions, and we had a conference over it. What was the, the Ramada Hotel? And um, so we were discussing all this a lot, the, the NAFTA thing, uh, trying to put a real strong critique against it. We had a number of forums, and they were very well attended here in Tucson, I mean, over on El Rio and El Pueblo. Mm -hmm. So we took that education part really seriously. And Isabel, together with Jesus Roma, were involved in a couple of cases on border uh, mistreatment, you know, and killing, stuff like that. So we kept very much in tune. And an important thing was going on, too. AFSC had appointed Maria Jimenez to establish, to organize along the border on both sides of the border. Maria Jimenez is an incredible organizer. She was in Houston, and she started organizing immigrant groups on this side of the border and on the south side of the border. There had already, because of IRCA, we had always been in touch with Chicano organizing on immigration from California, and we had had several meetings, one here, one in San Diego, so there was that going on, and then Maria came in and helped organize more. So there were two things happening. National network that emerged out of the organizing in California with Chicanos and other people in, on the East Coast, and then this thing that Maria was doing on the border on both sides. So we went down, like we had meetings in McAllen, Texas, and then down south, we would go to Brownsville and Matamoros, you know, meetings. Like every six months, there would be a meeting on the border. Wow. So we all got to know each other, mm -hmm. uh, you know, quite well. Because there were a number of issues, I mean, enforcement issues that were really problematic. And that was when we did our first study on the Tucson mistreatment, because I had a student from Mexico City who wanted to do some empirical work on immigration. And... There was a student out of Madison who was doing the same thing with Texas. So Maria got us together, and we did that Tucson mistreatment uh, study in 94. So all this activity was going on, on on the border on both sides because we could all see Mexican migration was growing yeah, already, right. and we were seeing more and more and more mistreatment on the border. Mm -hmm. And... The big thing happened in California in 1990 with the passing of that uh, one, what is it, 137, whatever, that one, mm -hmm. that anti-immigrant law. I remember that. And that put, made it so that the presidential election of 92 with Clinton put closing the border on the national agenda, uh -huh. right? And so 
the kind of thing that came out of Washington with Clinton was really clamping down. And that's when we began to see in California a growth of deaths. And it was our friends and the organizers in California, Claudia Smith and uh, Roberto Gonzalez, they were the first ones that really pointed to that. And I remember we went to meet with them to talk about the ways that people were dying, and then we were noticing an uptick here. So that by the year 2000, I mean, this was horrible yeah. what was going on. And, and so uh, I retired from Pima in 99, and I had the one class I had developed on the history of the Mexicana Chicana that I had been teaching at the university since 84. Mm -hmm. So I had that one class, so I kept coming to the department. I had been a part of the Mexican Studies as an adjunct for years mm -hmm. doing that class. And so I started talking about immigration a lot, and I did a paper on um, uh, women's bodies on the border for a conference in Mexico City on cultural studies in the body. And I kind of did a history of experiences of Mexican women in terms of their bodies on the border. And a number of the people there were really interested in it. And so a friend of mine said, well, what are you doing about it? This was in 2003. I said, well, we want to do some research. We want you know, to have some really good, strong empirical research on what happens on rapes and sexual assault and that. But we don't have any money. We don't, you know, we don't have a way of doing it. I don't know what we're going to do um, because we had changed the uh, Mesilla organizing project into Coalición de Derechos Humanos, mm -hmm. making that transition from seeing immigration as civil rights to human rights. Mm -hmm. and, and that had taken place with the national network and things that here on the border. You know, we decided that was the way to go. And we had always been thinking, well, we'd like to have a research section. We had no money. And, uh, you know, empirical research is really expensive. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Takes a lot of money. Yeah. And so being at the center, uh, this friend of mine in Mexico City said, well, if you do one study, what do you need? I said, well, I don't know. I could use, you know, a few thousand bucks or whatever. So he said, well, I'll give you 10,000. Mm. Oh, I said, that's <laughs> wonderful. So I came over here. I talked to Tony Estrada, who was the head. I said, let's have an institute. I talked to Isabel. I said, we can do what we want. You know, out of the Oh, that's wonderful. Let's get together. Let's set up an agenda, you know, the whole thing. So we did that. And uh, Scott Carvajal, who had a big grant from some big thing he was doing on health, he gave money for me to have someone to help me, which was wonderful. And we started turning out grants. And this is the birth of the Border Migration yeah, Institute right, in Mexican-American right. Studies. Wow. Right. And, and I started sending students out to do things. And mm -hmm. so I had, I had 10 students that first summer of 2004. That spring, we had a meeting here. We brought some faculty together. We established the institute and put in paperwork, right? Well, that took years. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I had students and I got, I used some of that $10,000 to pay them. And 
That year, to the summer of 2004, I don't know if you were around then, but... I was, yeah. Uh, La Ladriera, Altar, those places were like crazy mm -hmm, with people, mm -hmm. right? Everything that. was going on, it was crazy. Mm -hmm. So I finally, our big question was, what happens to a person who is detained? What is the process? Like, nobody knew. Nobody had done that. So I had these students all working on, the, you know, let's find out exactly what happens to people once they get detained. And so then we got the, I, I was sending them down, Margo was taking them down, and I was taking them down to La Pedrera, to Altar, mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. all over, you know, down there, working with some people at the Universidad de Hermosillo. In the Colegio de Sonora also, right? In the Colegio also, de right? Sonora Siria, also, uh -huh, yeah. Right. And yeah, I got together with Jill, you know, so we, we built this quick network. Mm -hmm. But these four students, I got permission for them to do ride-alongs. <laughs> wow. It was so huh. amazing. These four young women, two of them practically had a nervous breakdown oh from that experience. And so I got those, all those students that had been working together, and we put together a panel that we took to uh, the Chicano Studies Association in Miami, and then the following year in Albuquerque. We had like a pony show. <laughs> One of the young women had written, a, she was a rapper, and so she wrote a rap song on the deaths on the border. Oh, wow. yeah. And so what we would do, we'd go to the conference and we'd get our room and we'd set it up and put on that tape, right? So everybody, we didn't get tons <laughs> of people to come into our session. And it was boring to say anything because, you know, it's so boring to bureaucratically go through these things. Mm -hmm. But they had some good stories to tell. So we did that, and... And so we attracted some students that way uh, to come study here because they got really into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, 2004, 2005, you know, big things would happen. Yeah. But I had no money to, you know, you can do a certain amount with students, but, but there was no money. Mm -hmm. So the deaths were just overwhelming. That was like... What can we do? You know, all these community groups had organized. Everybody was doing stuff, but there was no empirical work on it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went to give a talk over at one of the Sunnyside Middle Schools one day. They had invited me to talk about, you know, women's roles or something. And um, Richard Elias was there also as a speaker. So his, Richard was a former student of mine oh, years that right? ago, yeah. So we were walking out, talking, you know, how are things going? Okay, I said, well, they're not okay. I said, I need to do something on these deaths, and I just can't get any money for it anywhere, uh, no matter how many grants we write. He said, well, he said, I could come up with 5000 for you. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I can we got the letter of agreement from the university and the county, you know, all that kind of stuff together. He sent us the 5,000 bucks, and I said, now what am I going to do? So I had two really good students, Daniel Martinez and Ines Duarte. And I called them in. I said, okay, here's our chance. And Daniel, had, both of them had worked with me on the summer before, you know, and all that stuff. And so... Um, said, fine. I said, so what are we going to do? We're going to go a really strict path. Nothing we say, nothing we come to 
can we not prove? So it's a medical examiner. That's where we have to go. That's where they have the cut mm. and dry information that nobody can debate, right? So the letters have been working with Bruce Parks for a long time already on the death thing. You know, we'd been there before, and he knew us well. Office of the Pima County Medical Yeah, Center. right. Uh-huh. And um, so I called and got an appointment. We went and talked to him. He said, sounds fine. So we went over the parameters for how to use the records, etc., that they had. And we wrote a letter of agreement between the, the U and, and them. And so we used the part of the money to pay gas for <laughs> for Daniel to go down there and come back. Mm-hmm. I mean, so they went through it. And I said, but we, I wanted to go back to 1980, but we just didn't have enough money for that. So we started in 1990. So that we would have a kind of a historical view of these deaths, not just right now, mm-hmm. right? And so Daniel has kept that database present. I will be releasing another report uh, later this year uh-huh. on putting them up to date, which is a lot of work because every time they identify someone, it changes the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, these identifications don't happen all at once or anything. Mm-hmm. So he's been wonderful about keeping that database mm-hmm. current and keeping it up. And so we were able to do that. And Danielle is now a professor of sociology yeah, here he, at yeah. the university. Right, right, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, but he does just wonderful work. But he worked with us then, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, I know there's so yeah. many. St- I know so many students yeah. who, including students whose committees yeah. I've been on, who worked right. with you right. on these projects. Like that kind of that moment that you're saying, yeah. 2004. We had all five. these students that came uh, that used it for their masters, Francisco Vides, Catherine, uh, Kay, uh, Kat Rodriguez. Uh, now, Latin American studies are over five or six. You know, mm-hmm. use data than Glenda. Um, Jenna Glick, an international, she was in the Honors College. She's now a professor in the University of Maryland. You know what I mean? We've worked yeah. with so many. Jeremy Slack. Jer- oh, Jeremy, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we had yeah, a really wonderful group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you, what do you see when you look out at what's happening on the border at this moment? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I am so utterly depressed by what I see. Uh, I think one of the things that I've learned in coming back here, you know, and thinking back of when I was growing up in Douglas, is that <clears throat> the the history of the inter-ethnic relationships is still to be told. And we are so far from telling it. You know, there are a lot of efforts now, but... It's still not told, you know, it's not, it's not there. And to have a president come in who divides us more and makes it more difficult to tell this story of inter-ethnic relationships uh, makes everything else more difficult because the border has always been a place of of contested identities, of shifting 
sovereignties. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's a very dynamic place. And it almost seems to be better off when nobody pays any attention to it. Like when I grew up, nobody cared about the border, except the people who lived there. But, you know, nobody else cared. And that was kind of nice in a way. It did lead to these different power differences that were very visible. But communities were often trying to work them out. And I think that after the civil rights movement, it affected the border in the way of also trying to work out better inter-ethnic relationships. And, and ethnic relationships because newly arrived Mexicans and Mexicans who had been here a long time with the civil rights movement had to kind of also find a way of communicating among themselves. And so to see all that effort that was put in by so many people to try to help us live together in a better way is so threatened now. And I get very sad because I see here in Tucson, we have all these groups, these volunteer groups of Anglo people who want to help Mexican people, you know what I mean, we help migrants, Mm -hmm. and really do very courageous, wonderful things. And we have people of the Mexican-American community also doing things. But these groups are always being pulled apart Mm -hmm. by these ethnic identities now. And before people could make efforts to try to make it work, now it's harder because of the leadership that we have on top and Mm -hmm. and the way that this president has approached describing the border, making it a place of crime, the way the laws are put in of criminalizing activity on the border, and now this wall that is like a symbol for the fact that we cannot get along, that we can't, with a, a total denial of a historical experience that can't be changed. I mean, what's happened is there to stay. And and so I get very, very sad at seeing that all that work, I'm sure it's done some good, but, but it seems like, um, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. And the only thing that encourages me, and it does a lot, is that there are a lot of young people who are really committed to doing something different. I don't know what their vision is for the border, to be very honest. Um, I don't know that we're so busy with each incident, with each moment of crises. There's, every day there's a different crisis. A new fire. There's a new fire. All our energies go into the fires. That To sit down and think of what kind of a life we could have at the border, what vision do we want, seems like uh, a luxury that we don't have time for, Mm -hmm. because the other things are so immediate and so needy. Mm -hmm. And so that discourages me, but the fact that there are a lot of young people and people who want to do things. The other thing is, we never talk about the migration to Arizona that comes from the Midwest or from California. And we're dealing with two migrations here, not just one. Mm -hmm. And there's nobody talks about that. And I think that's so important. Yeah. Because 
the civil rights movement, what it did to Arizona was it made these inter-ethnic communities, these ethnic communities have to come to some kind of agreement on certain things. And it was far from perfect, right? But there was a conversation, there was a consciousness that was raised around it. And, and there were certain openings that were made to have a fuller uh, sense of equality, or at least a vision of moving towards equality. And these populations had gone through these things together. They had negotiated. Now we have all these other people coming from other places that have no sense of that struggle, that yeah, don't know right. what that negotiation mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. of how it was imperfect, but there was something there. Mm -hmm. And we never talk about that. And that I find frustrating, I think. And now it's become more difficult because of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the challenge for an inter-ethnic world is, is harsher, but I think that young people will help it change, and I, I hope that there, we were around to help that happen yeah. for the young people. Yeah, I agree with that. I think so. I can feel that in the in the classes that I did in mm -hmm. the classroom. I I have, mm -hmm. um, you know, students who are asking really astute questions, and and I can also feel the um, how difficult it is for them in this moment mm -hmm. trying to frame it, try to understand yeah. it. I mean, as we all are, yeah, right. And then just feeling like we're in such a, um, you know, we're under under such siege by our government here in this mm -hmm. region. I mean, yeah. I, well, I shouldn't say we because it's right, that, but, that threat yeah. is born differently by different people, but, um, but yeah. It, but it's, it affects it's us all. It affects us all, for sure. It affects sure. us all. No doubt yeah. about it, yeah. No, it's a, it's, it feels like a terrible time. At the same time, I was thinking about something that my um, colleague Emma Perez mm -hmm. here at the Southwest Center said when we did an interview with her um, some uh, weeks ago. She said, when I, when I decided to come to Tucson to take the job mm -hmm. in, at the University of Arizona, a lot of my friends were like, why would you go to Arizona? It's mm -hmm. such a, a, you know, a hotbed of some, yeah. or, or a, you know, such a laboratory of some of the most worst, some of the worst yeah. racist policies and et cetera. And she said, well, I'm going, in part, I'm going to Tucson because, um, because Arizona also has, on the flip side of that, this incredible history yeah. of resistance yeah. of all of that and counterculture and you know and she she said yeah. that that really I, I feel very drawn to that yeah I, I just you know I I thought that was such a it was really important to hear because mm -hmm. I feel like you know with so many people that I talk with we all feel the same mm -hmm. that this is just this is just a terrible hard awful yeah. moment it's dismal yeah oh but I think too that Tucson is different from other parts of Arizona. Yes. Uh -huh. And and we have that history, which is very complicated and not easy to uh, to unravel, mm -hmm. if you like, with the language that we have now. But I think, for example, um, when I first came to Tucson, when I came back, actually it was before I got married, uh, in 1960, that summer, I was working on my dissertation, and the law library here had all the works of, um, oh my gosh, how can I forget his name, the, the great 
inventor of that theory of sociological jurisprudence. I'll remember in a minute. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they had all his works here at the library. Mm -hmm. And so I got permission to use the law library that summer. Mm. And uh, and I was I had met my husband in Douglas, but he's from Tucson, so he would come up on weekends. And um, when we got engaged, uh, a friend of his family uh, had an engagement party. No, no, she invited us to her house for a party. It was right before we got engaged. It was Budge Painter. And she lived right downtown in an old, very Tucson uh, house with a patio. And I remember being so excited about this Tucson that I was meeting that was so different to the Tucson I described before of mm -hmm. having the fight because it was there where I met uh, Ed Spicer mm -hmm. and Bernie Fontana and uh, Jane Ivankovic, people who later became so important when I came back to do this history project. They helped me so much. And I can remember when I met them, I was just fascinated by the fact that they knew so much about Mexico, that they knew so much about the things that I thought were so important for people here to know, and that I had never known people like that before, mm -hmm. Anglos who were really enmeshed in that, in that world, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and I think that Tucson, like other places, Santa Fe, but Tucson has gone in a different direction maybe from Santa Fe, I don't know. Um, we have those negative things of using certain historical moments for tourism and not really knowing what's there. You know, there are, it's not a perfect thing, but there was this group of, of people in Tucson at that time, and that had been there for, had been here for a while, that were really open to other ways of seeing the world mm -hmm. and wanted to bring that out. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that exists here in Tucson now also, you know. Yeah. But, but it's hard. It's hard because voices can become very stringent. And um, so we have to kind of help that happen so we can have this inter-ethnic narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that has been hard to have in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. yeah, the last mm -hmm. few years. But history helps Tucson that way. Yeah. Because the resistance is alive, but it hasn't been solely of one ethnicity. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and I think that's important in this in this story. Mm -hmm. The the Chicano movement was very important, you know, and did tremendous opening wedges that are really clearly only done by Chicanos. However, there have always been those who have found ways of supporting that. Mm -hmm. And I think of, of Ray Thompson, for example, who was mm -hmm. just an incredible person in trying to help open up that narrative uh, at times when it was very difficult. Mm -hmm. And not perfect. But really sure. being an important element of that. Mm -hmm. And people taking risks and speaking out mm -hmm. and supporting. And right. Yeah, I've always appreciated that about Tucson. Mm -hmm. uh, 
um, from the time I, I, I got here in 1993. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd never, I, you know, I grew up in San Diego, mm-hmm. in suburbia. So yeah. my parents, you know, so the whole thing is pretty conservative. Right. And then right. I came here, I was like, wow, okay. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. Tucson is an active place. You mm-hmm. know, I can see that right yeah. away. Well, Raquel, thank you so much. Oh, this has been you. so interesting. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. <laughs> it made me think of things I hadn't thought about for a long time. <laughs> well, I just have such yeah. respect for you and the yeah. work you do and oh, your integrity. Yeah, well. I love talking to you.